This train of thought started with a basketball player and a baseball player. That's mal apropos for me, but it gets me to thinking about Christians and the whole of Pride Month. We're going to dive in deep on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing could be Second to the theme song playing, that that was quite pretentious of me. Mal apropos, meaning not like me. It's not like me for a long, deep train of thought to begin with the behavior of athletes, but it did. And I think we we really need to give it deep treatment. I know last week on the show I gave a very perfunctory treatment of what it's like to be a Christian in June in the Western world when everything is rainbow clad. And we are celebrating one of the seven deadly sins, pride. And that pride is around sexual deviancy and sexuality is outside of God's good design. And so I want to give that a much deeper treatment on this week's Corey Truax Show. Welcome to it. Amongst many other things, I get to serve the awesome people of Beachwood Church as the pastor for teaching. And also in that function, get to serve as a messenger coming up next week at the Southern Baptist Convention If you're listening to this a little delayed, I might be there right now out in Anaheim, California. I'll report back to to all of you and to many others what we do out there. I'm also almost positive I forgot to tell you that you're listening to his radio talk on Saturday morning or wherever you find podcasts or the Corey Truax Show. Glad to have you here. While I say it started with a baseball player and a basketball player, that's where the train of thought began. It quickly merged into another train of thought, so let me start here. I'm a practitioner of the church calendar. I'm about, I'm about to have my own household here. Not just me and two dogs, but me and a wife and ultimately five dogs. <laughs> and I hope we can start marking, not, not that I hope, I will lead in marking the church calendar. That we actually maybe have friends over to celebrate Pentecost. That we actually have an event of some sort to recognize Ascension Day. And we just came through what is really the richest time of the calendar for the Christian. We're now in ordinary time, is what the church historically has called it, until we get all the way to Advent. There's a couple things in between now and Advent, but we're really waiting now for for Christmas to come. And so coming coming off of Easter, and then you go into Ascension Day and Pentecost, I have my mind on the calendar of the, the one true faith, following Yahweh and the, the embodiment of Yahweh God, Jesus, his ministry on earth. And while I'm doing that, I am witnessing the, the promulgation, the dominance of my culture by another cult. You know, cult has a negative connotation, but in some of the denotative sense, it's religion. And for many, many years, the dominant religion, even if it wasn't the genuine one, the dominant religion of the United States and the Western world was Christianity. And the dominant religion now was secular humanism. One of the iterations, one of the ways secular humanism works itself out is through sexual freedom and sexual identity. And what I've noticed about the month of June that's being called Pride Month is that we really are seeing a new church calendar I started seeing it this way, that we've decided that the month of June, 
for our new religion, our new national religion of secular progressive humanism, is we come together for companies and corporations and schools to celebrate that sexualities outside of heterosexual marriage, we want to celebrate them, not tolerate them, but actually say it's good. The LGB group, that's good. It's not just, it's not just treat them equally. It's not be kind, not to be welcoming, affirm. This is good. And we will put iconography, we will put our stained glass windows in front of you to tell the story that this sexual deviancy is good. And I know deviancy sounds aggressive, but it just means to deviate, all right? So don't freak out if you get get really sensitive around language. There is one right sexuality, one man, one woman in marriage. Everything else is a deviation. And there's variations of deviation. There is sex outside of marriage. Or pre, or we used to call it premarital sex. That deviates from the plan, and it's, and it's sin, further down the line. Homosexuality is another deviation. It deviates even further from God's design, his good, beautiful design on sexuality. And we're in a month where the new secular religion says, celebrate that which is evil. Say it's good. And it starts to look even like the other religious events. I think about Passover, that the Jews would still celebrate. What are they celebrating, or how do they do it? One of the one of the things they're remembering is that there was once a judgment coming. And to protect yourself from that judgment, they would take the sign, the blood of a lamb, and put it over their door. And if they put up the sign, they put up the symbol to show their faithfulness to their God, then they'd be spared. Now go on Twitter and look at all the emblems of every company and corporation. Go downtown any major city and see even some of the apostate churches flying a different symbol. I'm sure many are flying it out of just genuine affirmation. But certainly, what if you don't fly it? There's an entire secular culture that will want to know, why aren't you affirming? Judgment might come for you. Judgment is now just cancellation. Judgment is being, being ridiculed ostracized, but we have a new Passover blood for the progressive secularists, humanists. So rainbow, put it on to cover your sins so the judgment won't come for you. It doesn't just feel like a Jewish holiday. This is starting to feel like a, a Christian holiday called Advent. You, got, you might call it Christmas. Advent is a celebration of a promise coming, and then a affirmation of believing a promise will be fulfilled. It's the confirmation, Jesus did come, Messiah came. It's also a promise, as he came once, he'll come again to make all things right. There's something about this month of celebration of sexual, devia- sexual deviation. It's looking, it's, a, it's affirmation, or it's looking towards a promise of one day when everyone will be affirmed, no matter their sexual proclivity. When you think about the hegemony of this movement, the sexual deviation movement, the LG and then all of that which comes after, you have to call this the most successful movement 
in civilization for at least the last 100 years. It happened in my lifetime. I mean, I won't go too long on this, but it was very normal. Even 25 years ago, I'm 36, 25 years ago, the vast majority of Americans saw homosexuality as sinful, a sinful act and a sinful desire. Only 25 years later, that's a minority of Americans, it's barely a majority of Christians, and this sexual deviation is one of the most celebrated qualities in any human anywhere now. You are, the, 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 new, ostrac- the new ostracization is if you do not affirm it. It's become the hegemonic power in the culture. And so here we have the dominant secular progressive humanist sexual affirmation ideology. It is running things. And it's into that world that we, the Christian, walk. And that that just brings up the, the idea of, well, how do we do that? How do we walk into a world that is affirming of that which is deviating from God's good design, his beautiful design for sexuality. It's already affecting the church. Maybe you saw the Church of Scotland started telling their priests that they can marry gay couples. The Methodist Church is in the middle of a split. A bunch of churches in northern Georgia just left their denomination over the affirmation of homosexuality. It's only going to become more stark and in your face. This month every year is only going to get more aggressive, especially those of you who work in the secular world. The pressure on you to affirm is only going to be ratcheted up year after year, June after June, unless the Lord does something in our culture. So I was permeating that milieu of secular progressive humanist church calendar, as it were, being so practiced in June, their Passover, their Advent, the Pride Month, the celebration of a seven deadly, one of the seven deadly sins. And then I saw some athletes. I was so impressed with them. I, uh, now I'm forgetting his name. I feel bad about that. I, I think it was Adam something. Maybe it was Jason Adam. I don't remember. He's a pitcher for the Tampa Bay Rays. And here's the the backstory. Here's a Christian. He's a believer working in a secular world. He comes into work one day to play professional baseball, and he says, hey, tonight, he finds out tonight uh, during the Tampa Bay home game, we're going to have Pride Night. We're going to celebrate the LG fill-in-the-blank with lots of other letters and symbols. We're going to celebrate tonight. And part of that is you're going to wear this hat that replaces your team logo with this rainbow logo. And you're going to wear this jersey that has this rainbow on it. And you, you Christian, along with the rest of your team, you're going to put on symbols to affirm behavior that the Lord condemns. And then Jason Adam just says, I just found it. Yeah, it is Jason Adam. Says this. It's a hard decision. Ultimately, we, we all said that we, what we want them, that's folks in the LG, fill in the blank with lots of stuff, community to know, that they're all welcome. They're all loved here. 
But when we put that symbol on our bodies, I think a lot of guys decided that that, hom- that homosexuality, he says it's, but homosexuality is a lifestyle that maybe, not that we look down on or look down on anybody, it's just that maybe we don't want to encourage it. We believe in Jesus. He's encouraged us to live a lifestyle that would abstain from that behavior. It's not, it's not just mental. It's not looking down. It's just that we believe the lifestyle he encouraged us to live for our good, not to withhold. But again, we love these men and women. We care about them. We want, the, want them to feel safe and welcome here. I think he kind of nailed it. Hey, guys, I just want to go to work. I'm not going to affirm sin. Hey, but you know, I don't, I don't hate you guys, right? You know that? You're welcome. Hey, cheers on. But I'm not, you, you can't make me f- affirm you. What a, what a kind way to do that. I know that there is an inclination for some folks to always fight. And there's definitely some room in this discussion for preaching repentance to the lost. And then there's room for what this guy just did. The believer. Maybe that's a model for you. Out in the secular world at your job, when you're asked to actively do something that affirms sin, just to very calmly and kindly say, hey, I, I don't want to do that personally. And I'm not making any statement about you or, or about anybody. If you could just let me be free and let's just live together in some kind of harmony. Pretty good. Well done. I've also been pretty high lately on a guy named Jonathan Isaac. I I'm only t- was tangentially familiar with him. He was the Orlando basketball, Orlando Magic basketball player who stood up for the national anthem when the entire league was kneeling. I don't particularly care about the national anthem stuff, but I was intrigued by him when he did that because he had some gospel reasoning for it. He also got some attention because he was one of the few players who refused to be vaccinated against COVID-19. I also have I don't have I don't have a lot to say about those two decisions. It's just he became an intriguing person to me because there was these hegemonic powers around him telling him what to do, telling him who to be. His conscience was uh, was hampered against what he was being told to do. And I just watched clip after clip, interview after interview with this guy. He's just so calm and nice. I don't think anybody could look at him and say he's angry or or feel judged by him. He's just so kind. He's just so nice. He says what he believes. He pulls no punches. He he just does it in the most meek, mild, kind, inviting way. So much so that if someone got mad at him for how he presented it, I think he wins out amongst like a neutral audience because he's just so kind. It just reminds me we have the opportunity to react to a world that demands of us to affirm sin. We can react humbly while also being faithful to the truth and just have a, a nice a, a nice demeanor about it. There was another reaction I, I saw. There was a, a church in Iowa that was uh, uh, knew there was a pride parade going through their downtown, and so they rented a billboard and put up Proverbs, I actually forgot where that was in Proverbs, I think Proverbs 11 or 10, they put up the Bible verse, 
when pride comes, shame comes thereafter. Now, I'm not, not going to, I'm not going to fault this church. I'm not going to say that they've done something wrong. I see where they're coming from. That's the, the, the call to repent, right? Hey, you guys have pride around your sexuality, but where pride comes, there is coming after that shame. There's judgment coming. I'm not going to call either either uh, strategy right or wrong. The Jonathan Isaac general demeanor and attitude, what this pitcher did with the Rays, it appeals to me. This other option of just putting up putting up the sign, I have some appeal to that too. I think it's just something you need to think about. We all need to think about how are we going to live in this sexually confused world when we're being asked to when we're being asked to acquiesce to their values. And I want you to, to dwell on that. Am I going to be more of this Tampa Bay pitcher and Jonathan Isaac type? If I'm am I going to be a little more combat, combative like this Iowa church? And are we going to be patient with one another when another Christian takes the other route? When someone like me, who's more Jonathan Isaac type and a more Jason Adam type, or Adam Jason, whatever his name was, when I see another Christian who's calling to repentance more forcefully, am I going to have grace for him, and will he have grace for me and not call me a wimp? I want you to dwell on that a little bit as we go to break. When we come back, I want to give you two ways to live and talk about the Christian sexual ethic in a world that despises the Christian sexual ethic. We'll do that and a lot more when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show right here on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. So how do we talk about it? How do we talk about the beautiful, affirming, biblical sexual ethic inside a culture that utterly despises it? Well, I have two ideas. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show on his radio talk and wherever you listen to podcasts. Here's an idea. You can connect to me, Corey Truax, that weird name of mine, by searching for me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you would be so kind, you can follow or send a friend request, whatever the appropriate action is on on those three sites, because I'm not the Snapper Chatter or the Ticker Talker or those other things, but those three, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, would love to connect with you there. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com, CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Here I am as a Baptist. And I have my two alliterated points on how to talk about it. Number one is poetically. Number two is prophetically. Poetically and prophetically. One, poetically. I think it's important that we do not talk about the Christian sexual ethic first as prohibitive. We don't have we need to talk about what it prohibits, but not first as prohibiting all the things you can't do. The first thing we talk about is how beautiful, logical, rational, and good the biblical sexual ethic is. The idea of one man and one woman for all of their lives together. That sexuality is experienced only in that relationship. That's beautiful. And I know it's beautiful because the alternatives have been so ugly. Just lately in the news, we find whatever this new viruses going around is primarily being credited to a, a an event where a lot of gay men were in the same city together in Europe. And now this type of flu or virus is starting to spread, and it's primarily spreading in gay men. We saw AIDS originally starting 
in homosexual relationships, not exclusively, but originally. We, we see, not just in homosexuality, but we see the disease that comes in the United States right now with folks 40 and under. The STI, the sexually transmitted infection or STD disease, whatever term is now appropriate, the rates are higher than ever because there's, 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 as there's beauty in the biblical sexual ethic, there's some ugly in the secular sexual ethic. How much heartbreak has the secular sexual ethic caused? No matter the facade the secularist puts up to pretend to say that the sex, the sex act itself or sexual acts themselves, they're just recreational. They don't bind your heart. There's not a real connection there. There are folks that have convinced themselves of that. Certainly there are men who are better at compartmentalizing, who use women. Women being less good at compartmentalizing, we, we could all tell the stories to one another of the heartbreak that comes when we are loose and uncareful with the sexual ethic. I've seen those heartbreaks in people. The disease and the heartbreak. What about the divorce? We've seen what going outside the sexual ethic into adultery, into pornography. When we adopt the idea that sex itself and consuming sexual materials isn't any really any different than just kind of overeating or indulging in any, any other given activity, when we don't treat sex itself as high and different and important, when we don't, man, we, we see the destruction that it's caused in divorces and how that affects kids. There's been the beauty of the biblical sexual ethic, and there's just been the ugly that secularism and its low view of sex and sexuality has caused. There's been destruction of disease and heartbreak and broken families. We are in a moment right now the last five or six years, of wrestling with the reality of what happens when secular humanism runs our sexual ethic and it causes abuse. What happens in that Me Too movement, in in one part, is one group of women deciding that sex is transactional. I'll trade sex for a thing I want, for a part I want, for some popularity. That was only one part of it. There were some real abuse cases. But then later on, they feel the shame of that. And then we actually have the real abuse. When secular humanism takes over and says, sexuality is not a, it's not a big deal. Everyone stop being such a prude. Stop being such a Puritan around this. I mean, the Puritans had their own problems. The prudes had their own problems. But it wasn't, it wasn't these. This loose sexual ethic has caused quite the destruction. I, so I see the ugliness of the secular sexual ethic. And then I consider the beauty of what God gave to us. Consider this rare, rare reality in our world. The beauty of two people on this planet given to one another and one another only for all of their lives. That's beautiful. Beautiful. 
And certainly there are folks with some with a seared heart or a seared conscience that know it's beautiful deep down, but they would fight against it and say, that's no, that's hideous. What a boring life as they go back into their lonely lives, knowing in the quiet moments how much they long for it. Even the folks with the most bravado and how 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 little sex means and how the idea of one man and one woman forever is just this boring nothingness. Yeah, we all we all we all have an inkling of what that lonely life is like when no one's around. Even those outside the faith know it's true. When they're honest, when they're when they're willing to even poke at their own worldviews to recognize there is beauty there. So, first I, I want us to talk about the biblical sexual ethic poetically, not first prohibitively. That the alternative has been destructive and the idea, the safety, the security, the intimacy of one man, one woman, for all time. It's beautiful. So first we talk about it poetically, but then we also talk about it prophetically. We'll never compromise. When asked, we'll always speak the truth. Some of you don't have to be asked. You're just going to speak the truth. I think it's two ways that we speak prophetically. One is actively never compromising. Where when we are asked to wear something like the, uh, whatever his name was, the pitcher was asked, not doing it. When the comp- your company says, please put your, in, in solidarity, put your pronouns in your signature line. No, I am um, not going to do that. Hey, this week, we're going to put up rainbow flags on all the classrooms or in your office and cubicles. Nope. I I mean, I love I love you guys, but no, not for me. I can't. I'd be glad to have a, coffee, a cup of coffee with you. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. Talk about it if you want to. But I can't, I can't compromise my fealty dedication to the beautiful sexual ethic of the Bible. And then if ever asked point blank, we just, we can't compromise. We speak the truth. I guess let me say this out loud then. Here's what I mean. Every sexual relationship, every sexual relationship or act outside of marriage between one man and one woman, it is sin. It will be judged. That's where the warning comes in. I told you there's two ways to speak prophetically. One is just don't compromise, and the other is to warn. That church in Iowa that rented that sign, they're giving a warning. Yes, pride comes, and then there is destruction after that. And so in personal relationship, in our social media presence, in how we talk about these things, let's affirm the biblical sexual ethic is beautiful. The alternative has been destructive. We're never going to compromise on that. And I have a word of warning for those who are operating in a different worldview. There is a judgment coming. That's not comfortable, but it's real, and we have to wrestle with it. Now, I am technically finished with that, with the question, how do we live in a world that's going to celebrate pride, one of the seven deadly sins, and celebrate it around sexual deviation from God's good design? Now you have some ideas on how to do that. I have one related story. 
I don't know if you saw this story out of Austin, Texas, where six- and seven-year-olds were taken into a bar during the day where they had scantily clad men who were dressed up as women dancing in front of them and gyrating in front of them, encouraging the six- and seven-year-old children to come up on a runway and a stage and do the same thing. Apparently, this is already illegal in Texas. That, well, the Texas law says that to get, if you're a business that is primarily sexual in nature, you can't work with anyone who's under 21. Now, I think these drag queen people would say they are not sexual in nature, but of course that's false. You could prove this in lots of ways. Usually the drag queen names are very suggestive. The the makeup and the hair and the wardrobes are often quite suggestive as well. One of the ways that you behave to be in drag is to be expressly sexual in your language and, I mean, of course, wardrobe and implication and movement and dances. So I just want to say this out loud. I can't believe I live in a time where this is controversial. Anyone who does this should be in jail. There's no context for it. Just because you put a a label on it doesn't mean it's okay. If you are a grown adult dancing sexually in front of a six or seven-year-old, you should go to jail. You don't have a hobby. You you have a sin problem. And You hear me getting a little aggressive here, and I just said let's speak poetically and prophetically. Well, when we're dealing with children, it's time to speak prophetically. There's a different standard when we deal with kids. When adults are just dealing with adults and no one outside the adults are getting hurt, I, I can deal I can deal with that with some patience and trying to just turn minds. But if you are telling me the thing you want to do is put on women's clothing and suggestively gyrate in front of children, I'm yeah, I'm saying that you have a a major problem and you should be in prison. What you've done is now criminal. That you that you demand to do this in front of children, you know. I some folks on the right took issue with me when I said teachers that want to talk about sexual things with kids that they're weird. Like that's a weird a uh, oh I'm, I can't say that that's a weird behavior. And you take that to a step further. We actually have adults in the country who are saying, "Please bring me your six and seven year olds. I would like to dance sexually in front of them." All right, you you belong in jail. You're a predator. And now, you take that same person that I just called a predator, and they're in a consensual relationship with an adult. All right, well, I want to speak the gospel to them. I want to be kind to them. I don't want to call them a predator. They're not dealing with children. And I want to see that person come to repentance and faith. That's different. But over here, uh, when we're dealing with kids, I, I don't know if South Carolina has a law like that. We need it. We need a law that says if you are doing anything whatsoever expressly sexual with a child, even if you've not touched the child, you go to jail. We got to stop sexualizing kids. And to also have them as an audience, I demand to have an audience. Someone must watch me do this sexual deviant thing. And I demand that it be children. Okay. You have a, we have a problem here. I also think this will be fun uh, just to watch the unbeliever have to defend it. So just uh, that's us coming forward saying, uh, we would like to make it illegal for 40-year-old men to dress up like women and have their thongs on dancing in front of children. Uh, we think that should be illegal. 
just to have the unbelievers have to step up and say, no, we shouldn't ban men in thongs from dancing in front of children. It's good. Six-year-olds should absolutely be seeing that. Actually, they should be forced to see it in school. You know how big of a winner that is? Sometimes you just need to put secular progressive humanism on the docket. You need to put it out in front of people so that people can see how hideous it is and then reject the hideousness of the worldview. All right, I got to take a break. I don't know all of what we're doing when we come back, but I do have a thought that's apropos to this about some of the suggestions regarding reform in the Southern Baptist Convention, regarding sex abuse reporting. Now that some meat is being put to those bones, there's a little little bit of uh, some nuance I think we need to get to. We'll do that and more when you return for the rest of the Corey Truax Show, wherever you find podcasts, and right here on his radio talk. permanent decisions or even semi-permanent decisions based on temporal feelings. That might be the pop culture advice, but it's also rooted in a lot of the proverbs that simply say things like, when you're angry, that's when you're not supposed to talk. When you're deeply in your feelings, that's not when big decisions need to get made. And that is a principle I want to apply to our current righteous rage and sadness over what's happened with the Southern Baptist Convention and sexual abuse. Let's do that in just a moment. Welcome back to the Corey Truax Show, wherever you listen to podcasts, right here on his radio talk. When you are listening to me, I might already be out in California, in Anaheim, for the Southern Baptist Convention, and I recently did an episode largely about the report and giving you a rundown of the characters in the story, What's uh, giving you some of the recommendations of things that might happen. And in that fervor that I understand, fervor is good. Intensity is is good in the right context. Contexts. Having a lot of fervency and intensity regarding defending women and children from sexual advances is good. And a lot, almost all, of the recommendations I've been seeing, I'm a fan of. But I want to give one word of caution to what I, th- I hope is, what I think is a small group who are, I think, allowing their emotions to make them overzealous in response. One of the recommendations of this guidepost report to the Southern Baptist Convention is a database that we all want. But the standard of how you put a person on that database hasn't been made clear. And I'm not I'm not nervous that it's going to happen, but I I do want to speak up to say that the recommendation from Guidepost, in this case, should not be followed, at least as I understand it. It appears their standard for placing a person on a database to say this person is a danger is if there's an allegation that they call credible. And credible is defined as it's not apparently false. It's not obviously false. So the standard that Guidepost sets up is this. There is a woman that accuses a man of something, a man who has some power and authority in the church, unless it's just on the face obviously false. Whatever she says, believe her, and now there will be consequences for that man. I want to argue that that goes one step too far. 
that whatever we do in terms of how how to get someone onto a database that says they they're a danger to others that needs to come with deliberate and biblical principles so deliberative principles we go slow you can even remove somebody guard somebody while while there's an investigation while there's a process going on but the the whole western civilization's law code is largely built on the Bible. Innocent until proven guilty is a biblical principle. Due process and establishing things by a number of witnesses, that's a biblical thing in our judicial system. And certainly this is the case. The Southern Baptist Convention's justice system should be at least as biblical as the American justice system. And the American justice system grants you're innocent until proven guilty and you get due process. And that standard is not the right that is not the right standard. The standard of unless it's obviously false, let's just go ahead and ruin this guy. We can't do that either. This is what I mean by the fervency. We can't go overboard. Maybe there's there's other standards you could choose from. Right? In in the law, there is the standard how do they say this? I think that standard goes it's more likely to be true than false. So we've collected a lot of evidence, and of the evidence we've collected, we've, we've gone through it, and it's, I can't prove it, but it's more likely true than false. That's at least a higher standard than an allegation was made, and unless it's just obviously false, we're assuming it's true. That's like the lowest standard. We shouldn't have that one. One step above that is we've done an investigation, it's more likely true than false. Maybe I could land somewhere in there. And then there's the highest standard. Before we remove somebody, before we really take a step that in some ways can rock someone's life, let's investigate and go slow and assume someone's innocent, and then there's going to have to be an, an active, positive case made that the person is guilty and in need of removal. Now, I also want to add this. As we build a infrastructure at the national level for Southern Baptist life to adjudicate these things, we shouldn't forget that the first place to adjudicate should be the local church and the local authorities on these things. There are some folks I love inside the Southern Baptist Convention, some guys I listen to with some regularity. They're straight up against any national... They're against anything at the convention holding any church accountable. They, they see that as a violation of the autonomy of the local church. The local church deals with everything, and if they're dealing with it badly and poorly, well, that's for the local church to fix. It's for the members to fix. The leaders are messing it up. But no national accountability can be there. I know this is not popular with some of those folks. I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with national accountability in a similar way that I'm comfortable with the credentials committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. They're the ones who decides who's in and who's out. If we find that there's a church ordaining women, or flying a white supremacist flag. Yeah, I want them expelled, okay? I want them to, to, to be expelled. And equally, if we find that there's a church just kind of not taking this stuff seriously, yeah, I want them expelled, and I want it to be public while they're expelled. So we already have some national accountability. And I think this is a big enough deal. Again, I have different standards when we're dealing sometimes with children. This is not just children. This is also dealing with just those who are weaker than the person doing the violating, I have a different standard when we're talking about defending children and protecting children. 
So while I'm okay with national convention-level accountability, of course, the first thing should be the church. If there is someone who's committed a crime in a church, let's go to the local authorities and get that person charged and let that local church do church discipline first. That's how that should work. And then if some if a victim or someone who's trying to represent a victim, victim finds, I'm not getting any relief from this church. This church is corrupt. They're not handling it. All right, I want to have a, a higher body of accountability to bring that to. And when they get to that accountability level, again, that's where I want that balance, where we don't just start putting people on lists unless we have a good reason to. And that's been slow and deliberative so that everybody is protected. I obviously want women and children protected, and I want—I don't want the fervency of the moment, uh, all the emotions welling, us, welling up to make us a lawless people where folks are getting accused with no ability to defend themselves. All right, that's a quick word on what's happening there. Now, how do I want to handle these last 10 minutes? I think I'll go here. I've been listening to a book by Douglas Murray called War on the West. I think it's very important, and if you are going to listen to a book and or pick one up to read, I think he's got a lot of a lot of good insight. Some of it's too aggressive for me. I don't know if he comes from a Christian perspective. I suspect it's more of a you know you know how people like if you're born in Italy or you're born in Ireland, you're like I'm yeah I'm Catholic. Just you're born there and you have a you you were baptized, so yeah I'm kind of Catholic. This Douglas Murray guy is British. I suspect he's that like Anglin, Anglican Church of Britain thing, like grew up in it, but probably not a practicer of Christianity. I've been reading the book, so also, excuse me, that's not true. I'm listening to the book. I don't want to make myself sound more ambitious than I am. I've also been watching some of his interviews, and so I want to give you just a clip of one of his interviews, and then I want to respond to it as I go. Here's the premise of War on the West that the Western civilization, so the, the civilizations that came out of the Enlightenment, primarily primarily that's going to be the United States and a renewed Britain and then a renewed France, that this Western world is under attack by those inside of it, the woke progressive types. And at all of our institutions, that's businesses and financial institutions, I've covered that recently with the environmental uh, diversity thing, um, to our universities and education system, government, Hollywood, entertainment, that all the institutions that are, were good, more, more good than bad, are being attacked by this wokeism. And he really gets into some good academic depth to it. I'm going to play for you a piece of an interview I heard from him recently. I think he was on the BBC here. This is Douglas Murray, author of War on the West. If I said to you, look, stick... I, I... I um I think there are things you could improve in your radio presenting style. Okay, True. I don't think I don't think there are. <laughs> it, it's things about you. You would think quite rightly. I'm not listening here to a friendly critic who wants to improve me. I'm listening to somebody who seems to really hate me, and then they don't seem to wish me well. Well, I'm afraid it's the same thing with nations and countries. If you tell me, so here's the illustration he was just giving to the radio guy. There's a way to criticize that says, "Hey, I want to help you be better because I like you." I'm a fan of yours, and here's some ways it could be better. I hope you have those people in your life. I think I have a lot of them that are willing to say to me, hey, here is some way that I think you can be better. And I think their heart's for me. They really want me to be better. It's not criticism for the sake of criticism. It's not trying to tear me down. And he is saying, there's a way to criticize your country like that, to show you love it. You love the, you love the civilization. You want it to be better. 
And then there's a different way to criticize. That the history of Britain is only to be seen through a lens of racism, oppression, slavery, and colonialism. I'm afraid I don't think you're speaking to me as a friendly critic. I think you're speaking to me about my country as an enemy. If you talk about the history of the United States and you pretend that it was founded solely in an original sin that no other civilization in the world had the same sin, only America had slavery, that the founding fathers were no good, that both North and South in the Civil War were bad, that Abraham Lincoln isn't a hero. That Haven't we all heard those things the last few years? I mean, I've been talking about them quite a bit. He just talks about them better than I do and with a British accent. That there's been a movement the last couple of years to say, there's nothing good here. The country that, in the civilization, I shouldn't just say us, but Western civilization that has brought so much wealth and prosperity and health and safety and stability to the planet and to billions of people in the Western world, it's just rotten to its core and tear it down. You know, I, I sometimes think about this in admittedly somewhat immature ways, but this hit me the other day, the other day. Is it hot water awesome? Just thought about living in an older time and never getting to have a hot shower. Could you do you realize 99.999999% of humans that have lived on the planet, they never had a hot shower? How awesome are hot showers? And what civilization gave us that? Western civilization, built on a biblical principle of tackling the world, to go forth, multiply, subdue the earth, to, to take care of ourselves with good hygiene, and then to recognize, man, sometimes our hygiene could feel even better. Like we could have a, we, we love humans and we want their experiences to be good. That hit me in part because there's a, it's an odd movement right now amongst some like business CEO types, or at least like, they're actually not CEOs of anything. They're just Instagram influencers who act like CEOs. There's a movement right now, let's take cold showers. It's for men. If you'll start your day with tackling discomfort, you'll be able to go out and tackle whatever the world wants to throw at you. So take cold showers. I've been responding to those guys with, you could also just be a man and just tackle hard things. When you stare at hard stuff, just do it anyway. You don't need a cold shower for that. You can just be a man instead. Weirdos. But I thought about hot showers are awesome. And I live in the civilization that produced those. And having enough food and being cool in the summer and warm in the winter and having all kinds of medicines when I need them. What a cool world. And I'm being told to think about that world as rotten and terrible to its core and it must be torn down. Back to Douglas Murray. That nothing good that America did in the 20th century was good. If you do all of those things, you're not really trying to tweak an improvement of America or add context. You're simply defaming the country. You're simply attacking it. Well, that's what the West is putting up with at the moment. And so you mentioned the National Trust. Let me throw one other institution in. And from there, he gets into an example about something I don't understand in Britain. And so I'm not going to subject you to it. Anyway, the book is good. It's important. And I, I recommend listening to it and or reading it for some of those arguments that there are those trying to undermine Western civilization. And bef before they do that, I would just want to remind them Western civilization has built this opulent, incredible world that we should mostly be grateful for. All right, I had one more thing on my sheet and I don't think I only have 90 seconds left. So let's go fast. This uh, massive or spate of shootings we've been having, we're starting to get lots of data and stats that I think even if you hear them, 
there's something in the something in you that might be skeptical. You hear things like we've had th- this many dozens or 90 mass shootings in this period of time. I I started looking into that and we we got to find a different definition for these things. Like we're we're calling gang violence mass shootings. We're calling uh murder suicides of people all intimately involved. So uh, a a woman who knows her husband is committing adultery who kills the woman, the man, someone else who happens to be around, and herself. And we're calling that a mass shooting because it got to four people dying by gun. I just want you to know context-wise, I, I know it seems like there's a lot of shootings right now, and that's sad. It's tragic. I don't want to take that away. And at the same time, I want you to know when you're being told, there's been a hundred mass shootings this year. Well, not. I mean, that's not what we think about, right? Like, when we think about mass shootings, we're talking about the guy in Vegas who just started shooting at random people at a country concert. We're talking about the the guy in Connecticut or the guy in, uh, uh, in, in Buffalo over the last several years or now the one in Uvalde, Texas, that for no reason whatsoever, unconnected to anything, just showing up and murdering people. That's what we think of as mass shootings. And let me just refer you to one of the resources on this. I think that a guy named Stu Bergier, I don't want to do it on my show. I've done enough gun stuff over the years. There's a guy named Stu Bergier on uh, uh, The Blaze, maybe? When I see him, I see him on YouTube or he's in my podcast feed. He did a very long one-hour episode breaking down every gun argument there is. It's brilliant and excellent. So if you're invested in that argument, if you're invested in Knowing all the ways in which you might be being manipulated by public figures and media figures around this, I highly encourage finding his show. Um, I think it's called Wonderful World of Stew and finding all those details there. All right, I have filled up an entire 50 minutes, and that went fast. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.